this morning. I purposefully did not make a PowerPoint, so there's not a PowerPoint. It's because I want everybody to follow along in their Bibles today. And so if you have your Bible, great. If you don't have your Bible, you can be like Mark and use your phone. Or there are Bibles on the back table. The reason being, um, I think I'm going to reference two or three verses outside of the book of Colossians today, and that's it. Um, Everything other than that is just going to be straight from Colossians. And so I want us to get familiar with our Bibles and, and follow me along as I walk us through the text this morning. And so we're in Colossians 2, 8. I'm going to read that verse. We'll pray, and then we'll get started this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Father God, Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity to be here this morning, Lord, to be gathered in your name for fellowship, Lord, to come as a body of Christ united, Lord, here this morning for one purpose, hopefully, Lord, to to glorify you, Lord, to, to learn from your word. Lord, so that we can declare your praises more. We can give thanks to you more, know you more, and worship you more. Lord, we, Lord, are so unworthy to be considered your children, to be a part of your family. Yet, Lord, by your grace, you've called us and chosen us and adopted us. And, Lord, we rejoice for that. We rejoice for the things that you've done in our lives and you're doing in our lives, you will do in our lives. But Lord, ultimately, we want to praise you simply for who you are. Holy, magnificent, awesome, just, righteous, loving and full of grace and mercy. Lord, though our unrighteousness and our infirmities weigh us down to hell, Lord, your righteousness brings us to your throne. Lord, let us never take for granted the grace. Lord, have us continually get a more and more refined view of ourselves, of our sin, and Lord, of you. As you grow us in Christ, mature us, Lord, in Christ. Lord, as you bring us here every Sunday morning, so that we may learn, so that we may know you more, so that we may praise you more. Lord, may you be uplifted in this sermon. May you be exalted. Lord, may you soften and prepare our hearts to hear from you this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Who in this room remembers the sweetness of their spiritual rebirth? Whether you were eight years old and your mom shared the gospel with you, and out of sheer excitement over the good news, you said yes to Jesus, or you came to know Christ through the tragedy of losing a loved one in the middle of an addiction, or in the midst of living for yourself, you had a Saul to Paul type transformation that radically changed your life, and all of a sudden there's this zeal and excitement for Christ. Maybe your memory of your rebirth was getting baptized and all you can remember is coming up out of the water free from the weight of your sin with a zeal to follow Jesus and share the truth of the gospel with others. Maybe, like me, your conversion wasn't a moment necessarily, but it was more of a season full of excitement And wrestling with hard truths where you have vivid, influential moments that led up to your rebirth that ultimately produced a great zeal for Christ. Nonetheless, if you are genuinely born again, you probably, in some way, shape, or form, glory in that day as it was the day or time of your life where you, as Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, that you were rescued from the domain of darkness 
and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That moment in time or that season of time in your life where you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior was the moment where Paul says you were rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son where you now have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Now that is something to praise God about. However, oftentimes in our lives, the joy and the excitement that we once felt stop there. After our parents' conversion, some do stay the course their entire lives and live incredibly Christ-centric, God-glorifying lives full of peace and joy. But if we are being honest with ourselves, that description only fits the small minority of Christians that we know. In fact, if we are to be honest, the majority of professing Christians, often ourselves included, experience little to no joy, little to no victory over sin. They battle the thoughts of, am I really saved? Is this really Christianity has to offer? And probably, is this even real? To which we often convince ourselves it is, just in case that it is, so that we don't go to hell. In the meantime, we live for ourselves. We go to church. We do the things that we think we're supposed to do. But we suppress the conviction of our sins as we learn to just live with them. Sometimes we tell other people about this guy we call Jesus who has done little to no improvements in our lives. And then we go on struggling with anxiety and depression just like the world our marriages end in divorce or are riddled with fights, just like the world. Our children are more of a nuisance than they are a blessing, just like the world. Our mouths are full, filthy, full of swearing, crude jokes, and gossip, just like the world. <coughs> we have road rage and harbor resentment towards people we don't get along with, just like the world. And ultimately, our lives feel just as meaningless as we know it is for the unbeliever. But Christian, it ought not to be this way. I promise you there is more. In Christ, as you focus on Him, there is endless joy and victory from sin. Life has meaning and it has fulfillment in Jesus Christ. However, Andrew Murray says this about this sad reality that many of us Christians walk in. The blessings that you once enjoyed were lost. The love and joy of your first meeting with your Savior, instead of deepening, have become faint and feeble. And often you have wondered what the reason could be with such a Savior, so mighty and so loving, why your experience of salvation should not have been a more fuller one. Do we feel this way? And be honest with yourselves and be honest with myself. Strip away the defense system. Break the chains and be real right now. Do you wonder why, as Andrew Murray puts it, that your experience of salvation hasn't been a fuller, more victorious one? Do you wonder why when you look at your life and you just see all the despair and the trials and the lack of joy and the constant fight with sin and you think, is this really it? If so, you're not alone. And if so, this sermon is for you. And if you think, no, not me, I'm very joyful in Christ and I'm very victorious against my sin, my marriage is wonderful, my kids are great, then this sermon is also for you. Because Paul's point in this verse in Colossians 2.8, as well as in his whole letter, is to encourage the believer. Whether that believer is in a rut or that believer is on cloud nine, his goal is to encourage the believer to focus on Jesus. That is why in Paul's introduction to the church of Colossae, he tells them he thanks God for their faith in Jesus. 
And then in verses 9 through 14, he prays specifically that every single member of the church in Colossae, whether mature or immature in the faith, that they would grow. Just like Pastor Mark shared in the devotion this morning. Paul echoes the same words in his letter to the church of Ephesus, that this group of believers would grow. That we at Grace Church would grow. Because it is so easy for us to get complacent in our lives, where we think we know enough and that destructive heresies can't come into our life and, and get us off base, or that we think that this Christian life, the, the lack of joy that we're living in is just simply the way it is until we get to heaven. But that's not true. Eternal life starts now in Christ, where we get to reap the benefits of the spiritual life of Christ now, where Christ had endless joy and endless peace and endless rest and endless comfort. We have that now. We have the strength of Christ now. This is not something that's just awaiting for us in eternity. And for, for now, we just get to live however we want. And, oh, man, life kind of stinks sometimes and trials and tribulations. And, of course, our marriages are going to not be well because nobody has a good marriage. No. Jesus says no. Eternal life starts now. And we have to start living like it. The church of Colossae had to start living like it. The church of Ephesus had to start living like it. And that's why Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 14, in his exact words, and listen to the sweetness of these words. And remember, again, remember that this is for the believer. Paul's prayer here is for the believer, not for the unbeliever. He says in chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If that is true, if verses 13 and 14 are true, that Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness, then Paul says we have to grow. We have to grow and we have to bear fruit and we have to be excited about Jesus and praise God and we have to live in joy. And we have to endure trials with all patience because that's what Jesus did. Isn't that remarkable? Paul's prayer for the saints is that they would continue to look unto Christ so that they may grow and bear fruit and give thanks continuously. Why? Because as Andrew Murray says about why we don't experience a more fuller salvation, he writes, the answer is very simple. You have wandered from him. We, even as saints, are prone to wander. Even in our regenerated state, we are prone to wander. That's why Paul prays for the church that we would grow, because we're prone to wander. That's why Paul warns against us getting, getting taken captive by false teaching in 2.8 and 2.4, because we're prone to wander. One of the most famous hymns is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And in that old hymn, the lyrics go, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That should resonate. And if we were to take an honest look at our lives, and we can look back from our conversion till now at the many times where we have wandered and wandered and wandered. And we look at our lives and we think, why don't I have victory over this sin? Why isn't my marriage as good as it should be? Why don't my parents or my, my children obey? Why don't I have joy? Why am I depressed? The answer is simple. You wandered. Because Christ changes your life radically. So then we cry unto God and sing the next verses of this song. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above.
Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's wonderful. We need God to take our hearts, our wayward, wandering hearts, and take it and seal it in heaven. Because unless he does that, we are going to go astray, which is why our lives feel so meh sometimes. King David, a man after God's own heart, says in Psalm 119, verse 133, he says, Establish my footsteps in your word, and do not let iniquity have dominion over me. Establish my footsteps in your word, and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. King David realizes the truth that he needs God to keep the iniquity from him by establishing his footsteps in the word, or else, as the hymn declares, we will wander. We cannot fight sin on our own. We cannot just prevent ourselves from giving in to iniquity. We need God to not let us give in to iniquity. Because if God is not the one not letting us give in to iniquity, then we are going to give in to iniquity. That's why we can yell at our spouses and yell angrily at our children and lose our temper in traffic and be so joyless in our lives. That when plans get changed or ruined, that we throw a fit and we lose our minds. That's not Jesus in you. It's you in you. And we want to get rid of that. And Paul wants to get rid of that. We need Jesus to keep us from wandering. So then when we get to Colossians 2 verse 8, where the Apostle Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, this verse should sound similar to one we've already covered. It sounds a lot like 2.4, where Paul says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. The only difference is that Paul gets into more detail on what these persuasive arguments are. And just like in 2.8, where we see that the defense for these destructive heresies is looking according to Christ, is focusing on Christ, Paul writes in two, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, just before the warning of persuasive arguments in verse 4, that the defense is being grounded in Christ, in whom is the fullness of all wisdom and knowledge. He writes that their hearts may be encouraged, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, the true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Then he says in verse 4, I say this so. He says that Christ, in Christ, is hidden all the treasuries of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is. I say this truth so that you won't be persuaded by persuasive arguments. And then immediately after the warning in verse 4, Paul praises the church in verse 5 for their faith in Christ, exhorts them in verse 6 to walk in Christ, and in verse 7, he encourages them to continue to be built up in Christ just as they have been rooted in Christ. Therefore, before we dive into any of the real heresies and how they relate to us today, let's keep in mind the antidote to such persuasive arguments, to such misplaced Christian living, to such defeat in our lives. And that is focusing on Jesus Christ. In fact, as I'm sure many of you have already heard this illustration, but it's a good one and it's worth repeating. When they train bank tellers and those in the money world to spot counterfeit bills, they train them by having them become so familiar with the real one so that when they see something that's not the real one, they can spot it right away as a counterfeit. 
In the same way, Paul is telling us believers to become so accustomed with Jesus Christ so that we will not be taken captive by destructive teaching and living that undercuts Jesus Christ. And before we get into these heresies, let's keep in mind that this is important, that these aren't just belief systems, they're ways of life. And so you can have orthodox, you can have an orthodox, meaning a right understanding of the Christian belief. You could, you could recite the Nicene Creed and say all this stuff, and I hold to all these different pillars of the faith, and you could be reformed, you could call yourself a Calvinist, you could hold to the doctrines of grace, whatever it is, whatever you think is good and pure and orthodox Christianity, you could hold to all of that. Yet if your lifestyle does not reflect it, then you are believing a lie. And you too are being taken captive by destructive heresies. If you are living in continual depression, you are being taken, taken captive by the heresy that says in Christ there is no joy on this side of glory. That's only in eternity. We have to keep that in mind as we go through. Because I think a lot of the, the heresies that plague the church today are lifestyle ones. They say you can love Jesus and not obey him. That's heresy. It doesn't matter what you intellectually ascend to if your lifestyle doesn't also back it up and affirm it. So we've got to be very careful on both sides. So then what are the heresies that are attacking the church at Colossae? First off, as we know, there's Gnosticism. The heresy that encouraged secret knowledge and condemned anything in the flesh as evil. Which is why Gnostics denied the humanity and deity of Jesus because if Jesus was really a man then he would have been evil. Which is why they say he was only a spiritual being. However, if Jesus wasn't a man, then he cannot atone for man's sins and we have no hope. The humanity of Jesus is just as important as the deity of Jesus. He is 100% man, 100% God. However, Paul combats this heresy in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15-20. through 20. With the most glorious chunk of text regarding the person of Christ in all of Scripture. I'm sure that Mark would agree with me that if we could and had the time for it, we would spend the rest of our lives just preaching on Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Because it just exalts Christ. It's the most glorious text in all of Scripture. It's so beautiful. Let's read it again because this text, as it comes prior to either of the formal warnings in 2.4 and 2.8 against false teaching is absolutely fundamental to combating the other heresies that exist in Colossae as well as in our world today. Why? I'm going to read it in a second, but why? For two reasons. First being that this chunk of text is a giant, never-ending doctrinal meal that you could feast on for endless hours, and continually see how glorious Jesus is. And second, because the text shows us how glorious Jesus is, which for the truly regenerated heart should produce such a compulsion to love and serve him more and more and more and more. If we see this text as regenerated believers and are left unmoved, there's a problem in our hearts. Because this text has to change us when we look unto Christ and who he is. So join with me, I'll read it. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, follow along. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. 
Wow. Just wow. I'm telling you, we could seriously spend the rest of our time this morning just reading this text over and over and over again. And that should and would and probably could produce an ecstatic excitement for Jesus Christ, our Lord. In this text, we see that Jesus is God. We see that he existed prior to creation. We see that he is the one that did the creating. That he is also the one sustaining the entire universe. As well as the fact that he is the only one worthy of all glory. And that the Father desires Jesus to be exalted. And that in him we have new life. Hear that again. Jesus Christ, the God-man, our Messiah who created the world and to this day causes every single drop of rain to fall and where it is to land. Like, just picture that real quick. I was driving the other day in my car, rainstorm. I'm just looking at the windshield. Thousands and thousands of raindrops falling on my windshield. Not by chance, not by God just dropping them from the sky. But Jesus, as Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, Jesus, sustaining every single drop as it falls all the way down, as it continues to fall until it hits my windshield and splashes as he controls every single drop that comes forth from the splash. Jesus controlling all of that. Not just knowing it, not just letting it drop and then fall on its own free will. Jesus causing that raindrop to fall in the exact spot. And he did that for every single one of the raindrops that hit my windshield, and every single one of the raindrops that hit the road, and every single one of the raindrops that falls in the most remote places of this earth that we don't even know exist. He does that for every blade of grass that grows. He does that for every breath in our lungs. Jesus is sustaining everything. Like we have this, we have this wrong idea that, that Jesus just, that God just created the world, and then like produced, like he, he caused like there, these different systems to take place. And, and so the, the plants would grow naturally and then the animals would come to the grass and they would eat naturally. No, 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 that's not what scripture says. Scripture says that every single blade of grass is grown by God and then every single cow that goes and feeds on that grass is caused to do so by God. Jesus sustaining it all. Jesus, the creator of the world, is now sustaining the entire world. There's not a single thing in this room. The chairs that you are sitting on are held together by Jesus. Not by the screws that are holding them together by Jesus. They're being held together by Jesus. So this Jesus, the same Jesus that causes every breath in each of our lungs, is the same Jesus who left heaven, emptied himself. He took on the form of a baby who had to grow and mature like us, was tempted by sin, yet perfectly resisted without sinning. This is the same man who went to the cross for his bride while we wanted nothing to do with him. And he bore the punishment that we deserved so that we could live for him both now and in all of eternity. He is the same being who supernaturally caused our rebirth. Jesus Christ, creator, sustainer, savior, Messiah, Lord, causes us to be here. We're here because of Jesus. And if we're converted, we're here because Jesus converted us. That's incredible. And that's why this chunk of text is so vital for us to look at again prior to moving forward. Jesus is awesome and we ought to live for him. And that's Paul's point in 15 through 20. Jesus is incredible doesn't matter what the Gnostics say, the legalists say, the mystics say, the asceticism people say. Jesus is incredible. We got to live for him. The next few heresies that exist in this time are legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Pastor Mark and I will cover these specific texts as we get to them, but I do briefly want to go through them since our text specifically warns us of philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of man and the elementary principles of the world. First off, when I say legalism, what I mean is what legalism truly is, which is trying to earn salvation by keeping the Mosaic law. That's legalism. 
We see Paul combat this in Colossians 2.11, where he explicitly says that the Gentiles have been circumcised without hands by the circumcision of Christ. Simply put, these Gentiles did not get circumcised in order to become Christians, much like the Judaizers wanted to teach that you had to do. Now, I think the weight of that statement is lost today, being 2,000 years removed from the Mosaic law. But at that point in time in history, even, even the, the people that came to Christ that were Gentiles, they had to be proselytized as Israelites. Meaning that these people, if they wanted to worship Yahweh, they had to become, in essence, an Israelite. They had to get circumcised, they had to follow the Mosaic law, etc. And Paul is saying that these Gentiles that he is writing to, you Gentiles, were circumcised, not in the flesh, but in Christ. You are not under the Mosaic law any longer. But at that time, there are people saying, no, you have to follow the Mosaic law. Yeah, faith in Jesus is enough, but also now obey the law. And Paul is saying, no. Cornelius and his household in Acts 10 as well as the Roman guard in his household in Acts 16, are further examples of men being saved by faith alone rather than by any doing of the law. Furthermore, in Colossians 2.16, Paul continues to combat against legalism. This time, he refers to the specifics of dietary laws, Sabbath observance, and Jewish festivals, as all of these are a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, as Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 puts it, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year Make perfect those who draw near. The law could not make anyone perfect. Only Christ can make you perfect, and he does so with his spirit and the law that he has written on each believer's heart. Thus the Christian is no longer bound to the Mosaic law. There is nothing unclean any longer. There is no day that is more important than another. And to think that there is is simply a means of trying to merit your salvation, which Jesus says in his conversation with the rich young ruler and the disciples to follow, is impossible to do except through God. That's it. Then, in chapter 2, verses 17 through 23 of Colossians, we see a mixture of mysticism and asceticism. Asceticism being the practice of self-harm for religious purposes. First, in verse 17, we see people worshiping angels, or in verse 18, we see people worshiping angels and desiring visions. Paul says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stands on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Because at this time, due to the Gnostic influence, people regarded flesh as utterly evil, and therefore they thought they were inadequate to go to Christ directly for salvation and prayer. So instead, they would pray to angels and worship them as a means of getting to Christ so that they could get to God. There was a belief system at this time that said, no, you can't go to Christ directly. Go to the angels. Worship the angels. Talk to the angels. The angels will advocate for you. Does it sound familiar to a current modern day belief system, one in which we pray to saints and to Mary? Which we, which we claim so seriously. No, 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 no. We don't pray to them. We don't worship them. But they do. And it's very similar to what the Church of Colossae is dealing with, with the angels. Even further, they would desire supernatural signs and wonders in the forms of visions and dreams to solidify their faith. It became a means of having superior faith if you had a vision and others around you didn't. I mean, keep that in mind. Like, today... That, that shouldn't surprise us because today if somebody comes up to you and says, oh, God told me this, and then continues to say something that they think God told them, the other person 
if they're not founded in Christ and think, hmm, I don't know about that, is probably going to think, man, I want God to speak to me. Why hasn't God spoken audibly to me? This person has a story of God speaking audibly to them. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. But the point is, man, we get so worked up over that stuff. Man, if God just revealed himself to me in a cool way, if God just gave me a dream, if God just gave me a vision, revealed to me the truth, then I would have something to base my faith in. And Paul says, no, that's not what we're after. Be, have your faith be based in Jesus Christ. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter, he talks about how he saw Jesus Christ be glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so not only did he see Jesus be glorified right before his eyes, and then he hears the Father. So Peter sees Jesus be glorified, and then he hears the Father call from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the reason Peter brings that up is to say, Yeah, that was pretty awesome. It was pretty cool to see. But you guys, you guys have something better. You have the scripture. You have the scriptures that continually testify about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that was not uttered. That, was, that, that these scriptures were uttered by God himself. These scriptures are what we need because they point us to Christ so that our foundation can be in Christ. We don't need the audible voice of God. We don't need a vision. We don't need to worship angels. We don't need any of that spiritual nonsense. What we need is Jesus Christ. And as we grow in Christ, the Spirit is working in us. The Spirit leads us. The Spirit continues to do His work. But all of that visions and dreams and all these things we can get so easily hung up on. Those become a means of having superior faith if you hadn't had a vision and the others around you didn't. Mixed into this, they would practice self-harm in a variety of ways in their mind, to show allegiance to who they thought God was. They would deprive themselves of things they could have, as shown in verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They would deprive themselves of certain things as a means of, God, I love you this much, and I'm going to show you how much I love you by giving up this thing. And this is not to be confused with fasting. They were not fasting here. They were, they were practicing self harm by, by refraining from things that they could have and should have for their health as a means of, oh God, I love you so much, watch what I will do for you. They would treat their bodies very harshly, called abasement, and as shown in verses 17 and 23, to prove their desire to worship God. It says in verse 23, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. These things look noble. They think wise. The, the Church of Colossae, these, this group of Gentile believers, would have seen these people at the time and been like, wow, you love, you love Jesus so much that you're willing to whip yourself for him? That you're, you're trying to feel the pain that he felt on the cross? That's noble. And Paul says, no, that's not noble. That's heresy. That's not good. That's mysticism we got to run from that. But it was easily perceived as good and godly. Now before we think, phew, I'm glad those heresies don't exist today. Man, it's so good that America is a Christian nation. I want to give you real ways in which all of these heresies are very much still alive. And well, even in some of our own practices. First off, in regards to asceticism. A modern-day example would be a Buddhist monk, one that totally and continually just retreats out of his worship for God. On a lesser scale, it's someone inflicting real pain on themselves to punish themselves for their sin or to remove pain. This can be shown in bulimia, anorexia, cutting, and other ways of self-harm. I know that for me as a young boy in my teenage years, true story, I would often punch myself, slap myself in the face, or hit the wall as avenues for me to inflict punishment upon myself for sinful decisions. It sounds crazy, but when you're an adolescent kid that's not grounded in the faith and you think, man, I am so sinful and disgusting and I did this thing, I got to do something, and we, we, we punish ourselves. Martin Luther, the man coined with starting the Reformation, 
recounts more aggressive stories in his own life with his battles with his sin where he would whip himself and inflict severe, painful treatment of his body to try and cover up the sin. All of that is asceticism and it isn't looking to Christ. For mysticism, this can be far-left charismania where you believe in modern apostles and prophets which don't exist. And you believe that God wants you healthy and wealthy and successful and that you can just claim things in the spirit world and that your words have the power to somehow bind Satan, which you cannot do and your words do not have such power. Or this can be expressed in the Christian's involvement in horoscopes, occult practices, Ouija boards, luck, and superstitions, even silly things like Facebook. On Facebook, when we post silly things like this, I saw this one the other day on Facebook, and so I screenshotted it. It says, tonight while you sleep, God will send his angels to protect you. Share and click amen. That's mysticism. That is not Christianity. But we so easily fall into the trap of saying, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, let me, let me share this. God's blessing is going to be on me. His hand of favor is going to be on me. Wonderful. That's not Christianity. Think about it. If anyone has ever played baseball or softball, you are not to step on the foul line prior to the game starting, or that is bad luck. And then you won't play well. We call it superstition. Scripture calls it mysticism. That's heresy. When you train your kids up, and I was a product of this. I did these things. And this sounds like, this sounds intense and crazy. And dude, like, what are you talking about? It's sports. It doesn't matter. But this does matter. Because this thought process translates into our life in every facet. When you train your kids up in sports to think that because they wear a cross necklace under their jersey, that all of a sudden God's going to give them a good game. Or they wear a certain batting glove in one side of their pocket before they go up to bat. And that if they, they mix it up on accident, then they're going to strike out. That's mysticism. These things are not good superstitions that are fun for us. Like, this is heresy. Like, straight up heresy. If anybody wears a cross necklace, and I'm not saying cross necklaces are bad, so don't hear what I'm not saying. But if anyone wears a cross necklace so that you would feel closer to God, that's mysticism. That's idolatry. That is thinking that somehow because you're wearing this necklace, you now are closer to God. He's more pleased with you. It's fine to wear a cross necklace. But just because you're wearing the cross necklace does not make God any further or closer to you. And to think that it does is mysticism. These are thoughts and, and things that we just do and partake in that have no idea. It's not a problem to have a picture of Jesus on your wall. But it's a problem if the only place that you can pray is before that picture because you feel closer because of that picture. Those things are real and they're in our church and they're in our lives that we don't even think about. That's mysticism. Scripture says it's mysticism. This is, these are the kind of practices that the church of Colossae would fall prey to. We have to be careful and prayerful. I get that those things sound extreme, but that's the reality. For Gnosticism, there's Jehovah Witnesses who renounce Jesus' humanity, Mormons who deny his deity. However, in the church, it is easy for us to deny those practice, deny, it is easy for us to deny those in our practice, regardless of what our lips say, meaning that it's, it's possible for us to say, well, I'm not a Jehovah Witness and I'm not a Mormon. I believe that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God and I serve him and I come to church to prove it. But then the way we live our lives would say otherwise. And that's just as dangerous. That's Titus 1.16. People that look to be a part of Christ, but by their deeds they prove otherwise. That is true both for those who know lots, yet love little, and who know little, yet think they love lots. You cannot love Christ and his people effectively if you don't know the word. And just because you know the word doesn't mean you're going to love Christ and love his people effectively. We have to have both. For legalism, there is a growing movement called Hebrew Roots, which expresses that we have to abide by the Mosaic law in order to be saved. But there are also churches that hold to other absolutes that scripture doesn't hold to. 
Any belief system that says you have to dot, dot, dot in order to be saved, unless their answers are you have to repent and believe, are preaching a false gospel. As scripture makes it very clear that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law and that faith and repentance go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Therefore, as Paul says at the end of Colossians 2.23, none of these false practices are of any value against fleshly indulgence. What is? Only Christ. Only being rooted and grounded in Christ is going to keep you from all fleshly indulgence, meaning sin, meaning sinful practices, meaning sinful teaching, Sinful thoughts, sinful feelings. The only thing that is going to keep you from that is Christ. Warren Wearsby writes, The answer to legalism is the spiritual reality we have in Christ. The answer to mysticism is the spiritual union with Christ, the head of the church. The answer to asceticism is our position in Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We put all of this into daily practice as we fellowship with Christ through worship, the word, and prayer. I love that quote from Wearsby because he points to Christ as the answer for all heresies. In Christ we are righteous and are not bound to the law as he fulfilled it for us. In Christ we have the forgiveness of sins and we can go to the Father as Christ is our advocate for our sin. In Christ we don't have to suffer for our sins because Christ drank the cup of wrath reserved for us. And now we who have believed in him have died to sin and now live in Christ and his resurrection. That's the gospel and that's glorious. Jesus Christ and him alone. Now then, what do we do? You see, it does little good for us Christians if we declare and defend these truths yet do not demonstrate them. That is why Paul prays for our spiritual growth, reminds us of how glorious Jesus is, warns us against false teaching, suffers on our behalf, and exhorts us to hold fast to the head, that is Christ, so that we can have victory over fleshly indulgence. Therefore, when Paul says at the end of verse 8, rather than according to Christ, he means that we are to live in accordance to Christ. In 1 John 2.6, we are told that we are to walk as Christ walked. In Colossians 2.6, we are to walk in Christ Jesus. And in the Great Commission, Jesus exhorts his disciples, by t- he, he exhorts us to make disciples by teaching them all that he has commanded. What has he commanded us? Simply put, to follow him, to walk in him. And following him means dying to self. It means picking up our cross and running after him. It means dying to sin and focusing on Jesus as our redeemer, our propitiation, and our advocate. It means regarding him as Savior and as Lord. And when we do, then and only then will, we, will the Christian life make sense. Then and only then will you have a true view of yourself sin, and of God. Then and only then will you have joy and purpose. Now I want you to see something here. Bear with me. I want you to see something here. Starting in Colossians 3.1 all the way through 4.6, Paul's about to give a list of exhortations after exhortations after exhortations on how to live the Christian life. I want to read this section for us and talk about it. This is all in regards to living in accordance to Christ. This is the end of 2.8, living in accordance to Christ. This is it, right here, right now. Colossians 3.1 through 4.6. I'm going to read it and ask a question. Read it and ask a question. And I want you, that as you follow along in your Bibles or diligently pay attention, I want you to see the difference between these commands and the commands of the Mosaic Law. Because I think that is what is at the heart of what Paul is getting at here. So after he warns effectively of the false teaching in Colossae. He starts in 3.1. He says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Who in here, perfectly, meaning all the time, 
sets their minds on the things above. No one has a hand up. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Who in here never battle lustful, impure thoughts? For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you lay aside the old self with evil practices. And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Who in here never gets angry? Who in here never lets abusive speech pour forth from their mouth? Who in here never lies and half-truths are lies? In verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, of kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Who in here perfectly is all the time compassionate? Meaning compassionate with your wife, compassionate with your kids, compassionate with those around you. Who in here is perfectly humble? There's never an ounce of pride in them. When it comes to arguments that they don't want to be right, but they're okay with suffering wrong. Who in here is perfectly patient? Whether that's with your spouse or your kids or in the line at McDonald's or with your waiter or waitress at our place. Who in here perfectly bears with one another? Who in here doesn't have a single person in their life that they haven't forgiven? Who in here perfectly loves like Christ would love us? In every single interaction, in every single thought that we have, while we're driving in our cars and we're thinking of people at work or at home or in our family, are we perfectly loving them, perfectly being compassionate with them, perfectly being humble with them? How many of us are perfectly united with the body of Christ? That there's zero disputes in this body. That we all love each other like family. That we would give each other the shirt off our back. And that we desperately come here wanting and hungry to serve one another. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How many of us perfectly let the word of Christ richly dwell within us? So much so that in our conversations, we're encouraging with the word, we're singing the word, and we're praising the word. In our conversations with our spouses, our children, our co-workers, people at Grace Church. That the word of Christ is so richly dwelt within us that it's all that can, that can come from us. And, and keep in mind, this letter would be read in this service. It'd be like the, the pastor of the Church of Colossae got this letter from Paul and he's sitting here and he's reading it to the congregation. This is for the week. This is not for Sunday. This is for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. How many of us have the word of Christ so richly dwelling within us that it just oozes from us? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. How many of us give thanks to God the Father in every single thing that we do? That it is our ambition and our mission to glorify him in everything. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting for the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Oh, this is a big one. 
who perfectly loves their spouses? What if I asked them? This is a big one. They're all big, but this one is huge. As Christians, our marriages should be so loving that both the husband and the wife are obsessed with each other because they see Jesus in one another. Because they see Jesus in one another. Not obsessed with one another because they think they're so handsome or so beautiful, so kind, but because they see Christ in them. And if they see Christ in them, then they're going to treat them like Christ. And if you're desiring to be like Christ, then you're going you're to want your spouse to treat you like Christ. And you're going to be Christ to your spouse, and your spouse is going to be Christ to you. And your marriage is going to be so wonderful. It's so countercultural that unbelievers are going to see your marriage and think, How? How? Jesus. Exactly. What a testimony. The purpose of marriage is to demonstrate Christ's relationship with the church. And our marriages are so bad that they do anything but demonstrate our relationship with Christ and the church. Or, unfortunately, they do demonstrate our relationship with Christ and the church and our waywardness. It's like if you got married at the altar and then all of a sudden the groom just ran off with the bridesmaid, the maid of honor. They said, they said I do, they kissed, and the, the groom just took off with the maid of honor. That's how we treat Christ sometimes. And that mentality is reflected in our marriages. Our marriages should be the most encouraging statement of our faith to the unbeliever and to the believer. I should be able to look at every single one of you married couples in this church and be encouraged and want to love Jesus more. And look at these godly men and be like, man, that dude loves his wife like she's Christ. Amen. Husbands, your number one priority in this life, outside of your individual responsibility before the Lord, is to love, serve, study, and know your wives, point blank. Her heart is your priority. If she doesn't feel loved, that's your fault. The husbands should endlessly be pursuing their wives. Endlessly. They're to know them and study them continually. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Children, how many of you perfectly obey? Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Fathers and mothers, how many of you exasperate your children? How many of you apologize to your children when you do so? Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Employers, how many of you treat your employees like they're Christ? And employees, how many of you treat your boss like they're Christ? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It doesn't matter how annoying or painful that employee that you have is. You are to regard them as Christ because we are serving Christ and Christ alone. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. How many of us are devoted to prayer? Devoted to prayer. I bet you if we looked at our lives, seriously, if we looked at our lives and all of it was put up on the screen, how we spent all of our time every single day, there's a lot of things that we could say we're devoted to, and prayer probably isn't one of them. And Paul says, be devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. How many of us perfectly conduct ourselves with wisdom towards outsiders? Meaning that when an unbeliever sees us, we don't give them any room to hold anything against us. That they see us and they say, I don't know what it is about that person, but it's got to be Christ. Are we like that when we shop at the grocery store? When we go to baseball games and different sporting events, when we go camping? Or is our Christianity laid aside? And Christ is put on the, on the back shelf because I have a right to yell at this grocery store clerk for not having the brand of cereal that I wanted or for only having one checkout line employee. 
Or are we making the most of the opportunity like Christ? And finally, verse 6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. How many of us perfectly let our speech be seasoned with salt? This list of exhortations is a lot different than the Mosaic law. In the law, you can be certain that you obey simply by refraining from eating pork. Oh, check, did that one, didn't eat pork. However, in the New Covenant, the litmus test isn't that easy. The reality is we cannot do any of those things perfectly, but Christ's standard for us is perfection. This is why we need Jesus and we need his grace. His grace forgives us of our constant shortcomings and it fuels us for our future obedience. In other words, I need grace to forgive my lack of compassion towards others and I need grace to be more compassionate in the future. In every single instance, even when I am compassionate, there's probably ways in which I wasn't compassionate enough. Probably ways in which I fell short that I, did, I wasn't compassionate like Christ would have been towards them. We sin much more than we think, and we need grace for that too. Because at any time, we are not doing those things that I just listed, that Paul just listed. If at any time, we're not doing those things 100% like Jesus would, we're in sin. If you are not 100% humble and kind and compassionate and loving and united with your family and with your wife, with your kids, with the church, you're in sin. Even if you're alone driving your car, the thoughts that you have, if they're not perfectly loving, humble, kind, compassionate, you're in sin. That is why we should not have cavalier attitudes about sin. Cannot just think flippantly about sin. But as Paul exhorts, we need to focus on Jesus. Seek him. We need to fill ourselves with the word, like 3.16 says, we need to be devoted to prayer like 4.2 says. And as you do these things, I promise you, I promise you that you will grow in your love for God, that you will grow in your desire to obey Him, that you will grow in being better grounded against false teaching and false living, and you will walk in the new and victorious life that Jesus already purchased for you, full of joy that He has given you in Christ. To close, I want to share a favorite quote of my grandma's that she sent me this week. I'll read it, ponder the words, I'll pray and we'll get out of here. Brennan Manning writes, the longer you spend time in the presence of Jesus, the more accustomed you grow to his face the less adulation you will need because you will have discovered for yourself that he is enough. And in the presence, you will delight in the discovery of what it means to live by grace and not by performance. Father God, thank you so much, Lord, for loving us. Lord, for despite our unworthiness continually, you love us. While we were enemies of the cross, you died for us, you gave yourself for us, and your, Lord, your word says in Romans 5, how much more now, being reconciled to you, that you are still there for us, leading us, guiding us, directing us, forgiving us, loving us. Lord, I pray that our attitudes towards sin would not be cavalier. Lord, that as we just looked at your word in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, 6, and saw all the ways, Lord, that we would fall short and continually fall short, Lord, that we would do as your word says in 1 John 1, that we would confess our sin before you. And Lord, that as we do so, you are just and right in doing so. Meaning, Lord, that as we confess as believers, as we confess our sin before you, you are righteous in forgiving us. Lord, that is incredible. Lord, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for bearing all of our sin on the cross. Lord, have us be humble and sober and minded in spirit. Lord, continually transform us and conform us more and more to the image of your Son, Jesus. Lord, cause us to commune with your Son more, to be filled with the Word, to be devoted to prayer, to love like you would love, to be humble like you are humble, to be compassionate like you're compassionate, to love our spouses like you would, to 
to honor our children and not exasperate them like you would. To have our speech be seasoned with salt. To have our conduct be perfect towards outsiders. Father God, I pray that you would continue to draw us nearer and nearer to you. Lord, so that we would love you more, serve you more, and praise you more. Give thanks for who you are and what you've done, what you're doing, and what you will one day do. Lord, give us the reality of the promise that eternal life starts now. That in you now we can have joy. In you now we can have peace. In you now we can have life and fulfillment and satisfaction. And Lord, in you we can have good, God-honoring, glorifying marriages that are a testimony to who you are. Father, be exalted in this place. Be exalted in our lives as we go forward. Give us, Lord, a greater hunger and thirst for you. Keep our eyes focused on you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.